0: Buddy, this is ellen weatherford i'm here with just the zoo of us with a special guest this week we have a brand new friend this is jimmy Bernat. say hi jimmy
1: hi everybody
0: we're so excited to be talking to you and we're talking about a really neat little marine friend are they marine
1: mostly marine although there's some in freshwater too and they're kind of everywhere but we could get more into that later
0: Yes, we're talking about some, I'll just say aquatic friends, copepods. But before we talk about copepods, let's talk about Jimmy. Can you introduce yourself a little bit for our friends?
1: Yeah. Hi, everybody. My name is Jimmy Bernat, and I'm a postdoc researcher at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., Um, I just started a job there in January. Before that, I was a PhD student in D.C. at George Washington University, so that has kind of made this transition relatively easy. And I've been studying parasites and kind of small marine invertebrates for probably almost 10 years now. I used to work on tapeworms, and then I focused on parasitic copepods for my PhD, and I'm sure we'll hear more about those today.
0: So copepods are, are they always parasites?
1: No, great question. So most people have never heard of copepods, but those that have are are probably familiar with kind of planktonic copepods. You could think of them as being um, small shrimp-like crustaceans. Most of them are about the size and shape of either like a sesame seed or a grain of rice. So they're pretty tiny. But they're found in anywhere you can find water. They're really common and they're super abundant in the ocean. They are probably the most abundant animal in the ocean, actually, because they really dominate the marine plankton and they're found everywhere from the surface of the ocean to the deepest trenches and even hydrothermal vents. But you don't need to go to the ocean to find them. You could find them in freshwater lakes and streams. If you've ever cleaned leaves out of the gutter on your roof, there has probably been copepods even living in that. And they're even known from some not so aquatic habitats, like uh, damp leaves or even uh, like sort of moist soil. And even in Spanish moss and bromeliads that are like hanging from trees, they even like get up and and are found in there. Uh, People haven't looked very much at those, but when they have like, turns out there's hundreds or even thousands of copepods in these sort of like semi-terrestrial environments too.
0: Whoa. We have a lot of Spanish moss in Florida where we live.
1: Yeah. So you could probably find them there. I mean, there was, I I read a study where these people looked for copepods and this is like old school science where it was like, okay, we're going to take a clump of this and we're going to count everything that's in it. And I feel so bad for the people that had to do that because they found like hundreds or thousands of copepods per square meter of this stuff so they're really incredibly numerous and that's one of the things that gets me that has gotten me really interested in copepods because they're these things that are really all around us at all times have a super important role in the ecosystem yet most humans live their whole life never having heard or never noticing them
0: yeah. Like they just kind of get lost in the cacophony of what we know as just like little things. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the things that really hooked me on kind of biology. I always I always liked animals and I my favorite groups of animals growing up were uh, like reptiles and amphibians. And so when I was an undergrad in college, I thought maybe I would study those. And I started asking professors in the biology department at the University of Connecticut like and talking to TAs and being like, "Oh, what's research like and could I do that?" And so I met with, you know, a guy that studied frogs and I met with I wanted to meet with a professor that studied snake tongues, but he was on sabbatical, and then I met with a great professor Margaret Rubega that studies birds, and then I met with this woman Janine Kyra at the University of Connecticut that studies tapeworms of sharks. And she was so excited about these tapeworms of sharks that I started working in her lab. And then I got really hooked on this idea of like these small invertebrates. I actually think they're the most like interesting life on this planet. And yeah, most of us don't notice them because they're small. So we tend to be like as humans kind of biased to the big animals around us. But most of the animal diversity on this planet are these small invertebrates, like 95% of animal species are these small invertebrates so if an alien just like came to planet earth and randomly looked at animals they'd think most life on this planet was invertebrates and they're like little aliens they're the coolest thing to look at and learn about they do things that are totally different from the way that vertebrates live so that's like endlessly fun to watch and learn about I used to give a talk in this older biology building at the University of Connecticut where like water would kind of pool on the roof. The roof was kind of old and I was like, there are probably copepods above our heads right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's, I bet like it rained recently. I bet if I went outside and did a little bit of rummaging.
1: You would find them. Yeah, people have found them on like areas where water pools on the tops of like skyscrapers in, in New York City even. And it's not even clear how they get there. They're maybe being carried by birds or winged insects. But like, yeah, where there is water, you can probably find copepods.
0: So for people that have listened for a little while, they may remember the word copepod because we mentioned them very, very briefly in an earlier episode when we talked about the blobfish there's a famous picture of blobfish of the fish all deflated because it is a deep sea fish and it's been brought up. It has suffered that depressurization and it is just bleh. And it has this little chunk on the side of its mouth that looks at first glance like a booger. and
1: yeah. <laughs> Or a little bit of drool or something, yeah.
0: Yes, it's this unsightly little chunk of snot, what looks like snot on the side of the blobfish. But upon further investigation, it turns out that is a copepod.
1: Yep, and so there's 14,000 species of copepods, which is, like, pretty mind-boggling when you think about it. There's only, like, 6,000 species of mammals and about 10,000 species of birds, so there's more copepods than birds or mammals. And of those 14,000 species, about half are free-living. They tend to be, like, predators or they, like, kind of filter uh, little algae out of the water that they eat but the other half so another like 6 or 7000 are parasites and i mostly focus on the parasitic copepods and they're found on all sorts of freshwater and marine life basically every group of animals in the ocean has parasitic copepods that live on them Um, And fish are particularly good hosts. So there's a few thousand species of parasitic copepods that are known only from fish, that you can kind of think of them as being like fish fleas or maybe like ticks. So some of the parasitic copepods can like run around the surface of the fish and they're kind of like scraping at it and eating mucus or blood. And other ones, like the one that's on the blobfish, are kind of more like a tick or something because they can't run around the surface. They like attach to one area and stay embedded there. And that's what we could see it coming like out of the mouth of the blobfish is a is a type of copepod from the family Lernaeopodidae. And they're relatively big. So most copepods, like I said, are about the size and shape of a sesame seed or grain of rice. But actually, the parasitic copepods can be quite a bit bigger. Um, some of them can be maybe about the size of your fingernail. that's not uncommon. And there's actually some that can be quite giant, like as big as your hand. And the world's record like longest copepod is a is a parasitic copepod that's found on whales and also on very big fish like swordfish and marlin. and those can be a foot long. They're thin and narrow. so yeah, they're almost like a giant bendy straw, but they're <laughs> they're like a, a foot long and they have carry eggs and their eggs can be another foot long like a string of eggs so that's like a pretty substantial thing for an otherwise group of like small uh invertebrates
0: yeah so you said earlier that they are um shrimp like are they're crustaceans is this what they are
1: yep exactly so they're crustaceans actually a big part of my project and kind of an ongoing project now is to try to figure out where they fit into the crustacean tree of life because um people have been debating this for a really long time. People used to think they were most closely related to barnacles, which I know you had an episode about recently, or maybe they're more closely related to crabs and shrimp, or they might even be related to some other groups. And I've been kind of working on a project to see where exactly they fit into the crustacean tree of life. Because we know that they're crustaceans, but actually where the different groups of crustaceans fit in is still kind of unresolved.
0: I know that with such a wide variety of copepods, there's no way to say, like, they look like this, but if you were to, like, take a copepod and kind of zoom in and look at one scaled up, would it look like a shrimp? Do they look like crabs? Like, what do they kind of look like? It would
1: look more like a shrimp. So imagine, like, a lot of them are, like, teardrop shaped or, like, torpedo shaped because they're they're sort of, like, uh, you know, hydrodynamic, kind of built for swimming. Unless you get to the weird parasitic ones, and they attach to a host, and then they're built for all sorts of other weird stuff. But most copepods, like if you scoop up some pond water or seawater, they'll look sort of torpedo-shaped or sesame seed-shaped. And they have um, like 12 pairs of appendages. Um, So like five main pairs of legs and then like little antennae. So they'll often have big like paired antennae that you might see coming off of the head of an insect. Copepods have those too. The marine ones have some super long antennae that help them like sense if a a predator is coming by, they can sense like little disturbances in the water. And then they can do like a really fast escape jump. It's called to like swim super fast and dart away, which I can tell you is pretty impressive. And it makes them very hard to catch when they're alive. So like I've been chasing them around like a little dish when I'm looking for particular copepods with like a little pipette, and like they're they're tough to catch because as soon as you try trying to suck them up, they can do like an escape jump and like jump a centimeter away, maybe, which is, which is really impressive considering they're so small uh, and a centimeter can take them like totally out of the view in the microscope. And then you're like, oh, where did that thing go? And you have to search <laughs> for it again.
0: I, I bet that makes studying them pretty hard, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, well, typically you can, depending on the type of work you're doing, it's a lot of times easier to just kill them first. So you could like put a lot of alcohol in the water and that will sort of like pickle them all and then they stop swimming and then it's easy to sort through them but I was once trying to do a project where I wanted to look at RNA in copepods. And if you add alcohol to that, the RNA won't be preserved the right way. So I had to try to, like, pipette them when they were alive. And I spent, like, a week just chasing copepods around a, a dish. And it was, it was interesting. <laughs> it worked out, though. But it did make me realize, like, how well adapted they are for getting away from predators. Which makes sense. Because basically everything in the water wants to eat these, these things.
0: Oh, they're little popcorn snacks. Uh, yeah,
1: sorry to, yeah. Well, and actually, that brings me to a good point about copepods. They're, like, super key in aquatic food webs, especially in the ocean because they are just the right size to eat microscopic plants like single-celled algae but then they are big enough to be hunted by basically all of the macroscopic the non-microscopic life in the ocean so they form this like really crucial link in the food web kind of linking the microscopic food web with the macroscopic food web
0: i see okay so there is this what you would consider like a keystone is keystone the right word here
1: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So they are considered keystone species in like Arctic and upwelling environments, because if you, if you removed them, it would drastically change the rest of the food web, especially because when you think about it in the ocean, these things are like the most abundant animals in the ocean. So they, they do play a really, really key role. If you like any sort of seafood, do you have copepods at least partially to thank because basically all baby fish or shellfish are feeding on copepods at some point in their life.
0: Does that mean like when you eat fish you're probably like also eating copepods? Does it work like that? It probably doesn't work like that. Well
1: the parasitic ones are found on the skin and in the mouth and in the head so as soon as you take that off you're not encountering those but I mean I suppose if you were eating like a whole sardine and it had like its stomach contents in it there's probably like tiny little copepods in there and in fact, some of the more oily fish that we eat are oily because copepods are oily. And so there's there are fish that are specialized to kind of like filter feed small plankton out of the water. And uh, the majority of their diet is copepods. And these copepods keep like droplets of oil in their body to help them float because they want to stay in like the surface of the water where the light is and all the algae are. And so because they have oil in them and fish are eating so much of them, that's the reason why some fish are very oily. They're basically, like, accumulating this, like, high-calorie-nutrient-dense oil from all the copepods they're eating.
0: Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. They're they're having such a ripple effect.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, we should really, like, take the time to notice the small things in life if you can. I mean, a microscope is, like, the coolest thing in the world, I think. You can, like, seriously just, like, take a scoop of pond water and, like, watch – aquatic insects attacking copepods and like there's it's like a little safari going on in there all the time that you know most of us don't notice because it's it's a little too hard for us to see
0: I know. Now I'm going to have to get one so we can go. I have a six-year-old. I bet he would have a lot of fun going out in the backyard and scooping up some pod water and looking for some copepods.
1: Yeah, my nephew just got, uh, my sister got my six-year-old nephew a microscope for Christmas. And so I'm like really excited to go. But when I visit them in Georgia sometime kind of after the pandemic, be able to play around with them to, to look at stuff. Yeah.
0: So, since we were talking about what makes copepods so good at evading predators, <laughs> let's start with effectiveness. Because if you've never listened to this show, what we do is we rate animals out of 10 in different categories. And the first one is effectiveness, which is physical adaptations that let the animal do a good job of not dying and <laughs> keeping itself alive and competing, just all sorts of things that it is built into its body to make it a good animal. So what would you give copepods out of ten for effectiveness?
1: Yeah, so I'm definitely gonna hold up the ten. Like ten out of (laughs) ten for effectiveness in copepods. I mean, really they've they have been around for probably four hundred million years. So they have had a very long time to really polish their structures. And they do so many different things. So when you look at like a marine predatory copepod, it could have like raptorial appendages for like attacking and eating other copepods or small animals. The ones that eat algae, uh, like single-celled plankton, have like amazing feathery appendages that they're using to kind of sort through the water. And they're built for Efficiency because they have to be like yeah sorting all of these small particles to find the little morsels that they can eat. Um, And so it's actually really incredible and there's been some cool research looking at like using like high speed cameras to try to figure out how they're using all of these like very complex appendages like I said, like 12 pairs of appendages you know so they have a lot of tools in their toolkit for all different sorts of tasks. And then the parasitic ones too have taken all these like appendages that used to be used for swimming and they've turned them into claws and scraping parts and everything like that for all sorts of different lifestyles.
0: Have you ever played the game Spore? I
1: haven't, no.
0: There's a video game called Spore and it came out Forever ago, but you like start off as a little single celled organism, and over throughout the course of the game, you like add things to your organism. Okay, you start off where you're like eating other single celled organisms, Mm -hmm. and then you get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, and eventually you like go on to land. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome! It's a really cute little game, but the way that you were describing them having all of these add ons, like a Mr. Potato Head, where they've just got. stuff stuck to them
1: (laughs) yeah a good way to think of it and this is doesn't just go for copepods but really most arthropods like I think you could make a very strong case that arthropods are the most kind of successful life form on the planet because arthropods encompasses like okay copepods most abundant animal in the ocean and then also insects are also arthropods the most number of species of you know any group of animals and then of course there's also all the other crustaceans crabs shrimp krill, centipedes and millipedes are also arthropods. So one of the main reasons that arthropods are so successful is they basically have a body plan that's like a bunch of Swiss army knives stacked together where each segment of their body has a set of appendages that go with it. And then their body is just a repeat of all those segments. And so, you know, the first segment of their body is usually has the appendages are like antennae. So they're like, okay, first segment of of my body, I'm gonna feel around for stuff. Next few segments are gonna be like my mouth parts for like eating things. Later segments might be claws for fighting or for holding onto things. Later segments are gonna be legs for walking or for swimming. And so this, this like modular repeated pattern is a ideal system to make you flexible over evolutionary time for any sort of task in any sort of environment. And that's probably why we find arthropods in huge numbers everywhere.
0: Yeah, they've just they've got a little solution for everything. They got this like Batman utility belt. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking of it. Yeah.
0: So with the parasitic ones that are latching onto things or somehow like adhering themselves to some other creature and feeding off of that. How do they do that? Like we talked about barnacles recently and barnacles, Elizabeth Mills had said that they make like a glue sort of thing that they produce to stick themselves onto something. How are copepods like latching onto their hosts?
1: Yeah, so they do it in a bunch of different ways. Um, The most kind of standard way that probably most of the 6,000 or 7,000 species, species of parasitic copepods latch on is by modifying two of their sets of appendages to be claws. And so it's really common that they'll either have like their antennae or another structure called their maxillipeds are modified into these big claw-like things that they can use to hold on to whatever. If it's it's a fish, those might be shaped to hold on to scales. If it's a starfish they might be shaped in a different way to hold on to their host starfish and all the other groups of animals in the ocean but other copepods do different things so the giant one that I was talking about that's on whales and on fish that one actually is is called a mesoparasite because it partially embeds its body in its host and so it has a structure that's sometimes called like a holdfast. where so basically it bites its host it digs Partly into the host, and then it grows a sort of root like or like antler like structures. If you think of kind of like a deer's antler, but instead of just growing two, it'll grow like four or five of those, and that will act sort of like roots or an anchor that then holds the copepod into the body of that host. So the really big parasitic copepods do that, and also some of the parasitic copepods that are on squishy host so where it would be like hard to grab onto like a worm maybe with claws They will be mesoparasitic where they like partly embed in their host and that helps them stay like securely attached to more squishy like things
0: this is like so deep in thanks i hate it land it's like really really cool
1: and really really gross I should have mentioned this in the beginning. What does copepod actually mean? And I know some other guests have talked about like arthropod, right? So pod usually means like leg or, or foot. So it's like joint for arthropod. It's like jointed legs or jointed appendage. Copepod means or foot. So the oh. beginning copa is, is Greek for "oar," and they get that name because their feet in free living copepods tend to be kind of flat and paddle shaped. And so it means "oar foot because they have these little like, oar shaped feet for, for swimming. I like how I'm like gesturing all of this to you and <laughs> gesticulating and nobody's going to see like my silly little gestures, which is probably a good thing, but they have these great little oar feet for swimming. And what's even cooler, I'm not sure if this actually went into the name, but I like to think it does one of the unique characteristics of copepods when you said like if you pick up a copepod how do you know it's a copepod there's there's kind of two main things almost all of them have their feet linked together so their legs are linked together so they usually have like four pairs of swimming legs and each of those actually has a bar between it to link the left and the right leg so that when they swim, the stroke of the left leg and the right leg is happening at the same time or in a very concerted way. And so if you look at a copepod swimming in like high speed, it does look almost like a bunch of rowers in a boat because the left and the right leg are always moving in this like super concerted way because they're physically linked by a chitinous bar, like part of their exoskeleton links the left and the right legs.
0: Like an axle, sort of.
1: Yeah, like an axle. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking of it.
0: That's really neat.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so that's like their little oar feet where they get their name. And then the other really kind of unique thing about copepods, this isn't true for all of them, but if you pick up something from the ocean or freshwater and you're like, I have no idea what this is, if it has one pair, so two, egg sacs, that is a pretty unique thing to copepods. Not all of them carry pairs of egg sacs, but most of them do. And so if you pick these little things up, and this works even for the parasites, that like the parasites that Linnaeus and other people used to think, you know, in the 17 or 1800s, they thought some of these were worms. They didn't know they were crustaceans. And the way they figured out they were crustaceans is because they found some that had eggs, and when their eggs hatched, they have a baby. Crustacean larva called a noplius, which is the same thing that barnacles and most other crustaceans have. That's what alerted them to the fact that, oh, these worm-like things are actually parasitic copepods and not, not worms. So the paired egg sacs are really helpful. And those could either kind of look like a stack of coins. Like if you have a roll-up quarters and you see them like that, their eggs can be disc shaped like that, or they can kind of look like a little bunch of grapes where they're carrying them around. And that's kind of neat because most invertebrates don't, especially small ones don't care for their young very much. They kind of like just lay their eggs or release their gametes out into the ocean and they don't really care for their babies that much. But mother copepods are actually really good mothers. They have fewer offspring because they carry their eggs with them until they hatch. And that helps them ensure that kind of more of their, their babies survive.
0: Is there a lot of differentiation between what you would consider like a male and a female Copepod.
1: Yeah, great question. Yes, there is. It it depends by group. So sometimes like so we call that regardless of the animal, like sexual dimorphism, if people have ever heard of that, which means like males and females look different. In some free living copepods, it's not so dramatic, although in others, it's very dramatic. A lot of times the males will have like special structures for either sensing and like detecting females by chemicals that the females release. Uh, and they 'll often have special structures for grabbing onto the female to mate with her and they they the males produce things called spermatophores, which are like a little packet of sperm that they glue to the female and that 's a really efficient way of mating because the female can actually use that packet of sperm probably to fertilize like multiple sets of eggs. So, yes, there there is sexual dimorphism. And in the parasitic copepods, it can get even more extreme. Uh, so in some parasitic copepods, only the female is parasitic. This goes for the one that's on that blobfish. So the little thing that kind of looks like a booger or a piece of drool is a large female parasitic copepod. The female becomes giant. And by giant, I mean like a centimeter long, or, <laughs> but that's pretty big for a copepod. The male remains, it looks nothing like the female. He remains like a tiny little, almost larval-like thing. And where the female is modified for like attaching to the host, growing big, eating this fish and producing tons of eggs, the male is modified to just like swim around and find a female and mate with her. And so some of your listeners might be familiar with like how angler fish have kind of weird mating systems where they can have this like big female fish and the male fish is really small in some cases and just kind of like bites onto the female and lives the rest of its life bit onto the female. Well, a lot of parasitic copepods do that too, including that one that's on the black Lobfish, Lernaea potids all do that. The female is like giant and the male is this tiny thing that just attaches to her.
0: I like the sort of stack that they're creating of like there's the host and then the female attached to that and then the male attached to her. Yeah <laughs> yeah and
1: in some cases the females even have like these structures that people have named nuptial organs and it might be this little like they think it might be a nutritional thing where like, okay, the male attaches to the female and she's eating the fish. She has like all of the food that she could ever need. And so she might be like giving some of like producing something that the male feeds on. And so he's just like staying attached to her. It sounds very weird to us, but it's a super efficient way of living actually, because when you have a male attached to the female, that basically makes that female like almost like functionally hermaphroditic right she has like all of the sperm she could ever need now for the rest of her life to produce as many eggs as possible and so instead of having to like find another mate the next mating season or something they don't have to worry about that because there's a male like living right with them
0: she's set yeah she's good to go (laughs) yeah (laughs) I love that for her so when the parasitic copepod is latching onto this host Mm -hmm. do you know of any sort of like adaptations that the host has made in response to that like how can they get the copepod off like they don't have hands they can't scratch them off i have
1: definitely thought about that i'll first tell you a gross story that's not really going to answer your question but it's a fun story and then i'll try to circle back (laughs) to that question if i forget prompt me again how does the (laughs) host like fight off the copepods Well, for one, I have just appreciated for a long time that these like poor fish, they don't have like hands. They can't scratch these copepods off. And I I actually described a new species of copepod from Australia that just lives in the nostrils of fish. And I found like one fish that had like 10 little copepods in its nostrils
0: oh bless his heart
1: <laughs> yeah and i was like this this poor little fish had these like little like you know termite things like crawling around its nostrils doesn't even have like a finger to pick its nose with you know so it, it basically doesn't have much of a way to get rid of them but there are some things that fish could do so like cleaner fish on coral reefs will go in the mouth of fish or pick around on their surface and one of the things they're doing is is biting off parasites including copepods uh but fish also do have immune systems like we have that they can react to these parasites attaching to them. The tricky thing is they really only have an opportunity to defend themselves from these parasites when the parasites first attach, because at that stage, the the parasite is very small. Still, it's basically like a baby little parasitic copepod larva attaching to a fish. And so salmon for for example get a lot of parasitic copepods and native salmon um on the like Pacific Northwest actually have a very strong immune response. So when these copepods attach to their skin, their skin gets really swollen and they can actually engulf like the whole copepod in their skin and then their immune cells will attack the copepod and kill it.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's actually
1: amazing and and there's all sorts of problems with Atlantic salmon being farmed in other areas because Atlantic salmon actually don't have the strong immune response. So they don't really have a defense against the copepods. Um, but Pacific salmons like coho and pink salmon are actually much more resistant to these and don't have these problems when they're being farmed and stuff like that but that opportunity really only works when the copepod is a baby and attaching because once it gets attached if it survives that like initial immune response then it's pretty big and it can move around after uh, growing a bit more. So then the fish doesn't really have much of a chance because like if its skin starts to swell, the copepod's like, I'm big enough. You can't engulf me and I could just move to another area. So then the, yeah, there's not much they can do. They might try to do things like rub against something, a rock. There's Sometimes you can find videos of fish that will like bump up against a shark and people think sometimes they're trying to like scrape stuff the fish is using like the rough skin of a shark to try to like scrape parasites off or something but it's probably not this a very successful way and the copepods are pretty good at uh staying attached the parasitic copepods like that's what they're adapted for is like attachment oh and i did want to say when you asked about like ways they attach so barnacles make a glue most copepods have claws or embed but there are also some copepods like the one on that blobfish that have like a totally unique thing where they like scrape a little hole out in the fish and then they secrete kind of like a glue it's a unique substance i'm not sure if any chemists have ever looked at even what that is And they make like a little plug of glue that they stick to the fish and then they hold onto that little glue ball their whole life. So that's like another weird but unique attachment strategy that some parasitic copepods use.
0: Ooh, that's so like... It's yucky, but (laughs) I also love it. Yeah, it is. It is. Kind
1: of. Yeah. And it's just crazy that like over millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, it's one challenge attaching to a host. But Copepods have come up with like lots of different solutions to do that effectively.
0: The next thing that we talk about that is a good transition into this is their behavior. So clever things that they're doing with their body to maybe solve the problems that they're encountering or conquer obstacles in their way this is ingenuity so what do you give the copepods for ingenuity out of 10
1: yeah so again i think for some of the same reasons i'm going to give copepods a a 10 out of 10 because not only are they really effective but they've also shown that they're able to adapt to like these totally different circumstances. So like kind of what I was saying about being like a, you know, Swiss army knife, like the free living copepods could be predators or sort of suspension feeders filtering out plankton or other prey items. And then like the parasitic copepods have been like, I have a totally different lifestyle and I'm going to have all of these adaptations for that. And they've, they've nailed it. I mean, one of the main reasons I like studying copepods and I chose to, to start, focusing on them, and I really hope to focus on parasitic copepods for, like, the rest of my career, and hopefully, like, almost the rest of my life, is because of how successful they've been as parasites. Just about every group of animals in the ocean has parasitic copepods on them, and that goes from, you know, sponges and corals Jellyfish and starfish, tunicates, fish, whales, worms, all of them have different parasitic copepods that have specialized on them over the last few hundred million years. And so that's really incredible. It's hard to find a group of parasites that has been that successful on attaching to, you know, more than a dozen different phyla of (laughs) hosts is really amazing and that tells me that copepods are super effective and are doing things they're basically a great system to try to understand how parasites evolve because they've run the gamut they've like done it all
0: when we were off mic before we hit record you mentioned you mentioned plankton from SpongeBob. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: let's talk about that. That's like a thing that I really like to reference because again, most people have never heard of copepods before, but I do. most people are actually familiar with at least a cartoon version of a copepod, which is the character Plankton from SpongeBob, like, you know, the one that's always trying to steal the Krabby Patty recipe. He was definitely modeled after a copepod because he has that, like, he's the size and kind of shape of a grain of rice. And again, I was saying copepods are like the dominant part of the plankton so it makes sense that they would name him plankton and if you look at a plankton sample from the ocean most of it is copepods copepods also have like this small little antennae like plankton has and a really kind of iconic thing for a lot of copepods is that they have a, a single like cyclops like eye which plankton also has and so yeah kind of a simple cartoon of it but definitely plankton from spongebob was modeled after a copepod
0: and he also has parasitic tendencies and that he wants to steal the formula <laughs> wow, you know i had never thought of that
1: before but that's like that's getting really meta now yeah it's true
0: <laughs> <laughs> i bet that the uh, creators for that show probably had like at least a little like marine biology in their background
1: i think the creator was a marine biologist or, or something um i i remember reading that at some point yeah
0: what effective science communication that was all along <laughs> <laughs>
1: I saw somebody made these comics actually that was like took Spongebob to a much darker but like biologically kind of accurate place where they had done these like fan art of like Patrick like Starfish have all of these like weird adaptations for like feeding and stuff and so they had like drawn like Patrick, like, attacking all of the creatures in in, uh, Bikini Bottom and, like, feeding on them. And, uh, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A hyper-realistic (laughs) SpongeBob. Yeah, yeah.
1: But it got scary. It got kind of dark. It was like a... I think it was called, like, Bikini Bottom Horror. I
0: mean, realistically, that's what it... That's all it is down there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Even just the plankton. I mean, if you scoop up some pond water or ocean water it is like a national geographic like you know documentary happening all the time like trillions of times over cuz every cup of seawater spoonful of seawater has this like massive predator prey interaction playing out all over the place. And in some ways, I mean, it's small, so it's hard to see. But in some ways, it's even more dramatic, because the variation in scale, I mean, on the savanna, it's like the predators, you know, there's a lion eating an antelope or whatever, there's no equivalent of then like a basking shark swimming <laughs> through and eating the entire savanna. But like that is happening. <laughs> eating in the, ocean. the lion
0: and the antelope. <laughs> yeah,
1: and like the continent, you know, like, There's so many scales and levels of the food web in the ocean where you have microscopic things eating microscopic things, getting eaten by slightly bigger things and slightly bigger things, and then huge things, whales coming by and swallowing everything. It's like, it's super
0: dramatic. I did want to ask so when you you have a chance to work with these do you keep them in a petri dish yeah
1: usually a petri dish or actually one of the best things to work with them is uh called a watch glass and it's basically things that like watchmakers or watch repair people use which is like it's like a petri dish but it's um rounded on the bottom and that's really useful for watchmakers because they can put like little screws in them and they'll all like move to the middle because the bottom is rounded and the same thing If you put like small little plankton or specimens in it, they'll tend to like slide down into the very middle of the dish and it's easier to see them there. But yeah, tiny little glass dishes.
0: So you've got them in these little glass dishes. You've got your microscope so you can look and see what they're doing. What kind of behaviors do you get to observe like when you're looking at your little copepods that you're studying?
1: Yeah, so most of the time I've worked on parasitic copepods and I've spent most of my work, effort kind of collecting those. So a lot of the times that means like putting a fish and usually like a lot of the ones that are found on fish live on their gills. So a lot of times that means like, working with fishermen, catching fish, taking the gills out of the fish, and then putting the gills under a microscope and like carefully scanning the gills for the little copepods that are attached to them. They have a bunch of different behaviors. So there's these types of copepods called Ergasilus that are very common in freshwater in in the U.S. and they're found on like sunfish or largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, and rock bass, and also like bluegills. So if you're a freshwater fisherman in the U.S. and you've caught more than like five of those fish ever in your life, I can almost guarantee you that they had parasitic copepods on their gills because they're very common. The females of those copepods have these like giant arms, basically, that they use to just like hug a gill filament. Um, They can even like clasp their hands behind it to like really firmly attach. Other ones you can see are like crawling around on the gills. The ones that live on the surface of the body of fish are actually, uh, they can move very quickly. Their their body is modified. They almost look superficially like a very small horseshoe crab. So if you've seen a horseshoe crab before and they have this sort of like dome-shaped front end, a lot of parasitic copepods look like that. And that whole front end, they can actually like push the water out of it and it works as a suction cup. And so that's like a super effective way they can like scurry around. And then if they want to like suck on, they use their back legs to like push the water out from their suction cup and then they seal the suction cup with their back legs. And that is a super effective way to stay attached to a fish. It means it's even hard for me to remove them sometimes with like tweezers or forceps because they're so effectively attached to the fish with this little like suction cup. And then the free living ones have very different behaviors. They tend to be moving very quickly. They, they alternate between doing these like very fast burst jumps. It's actually one of the fastest and most powerful motions of, of any animal when they do these little like escape jumps. So if they thought a predator was coming by, they can like dart really fast that's what makes them really hard to kind of collect sometimes if you're trying to like suck them up from a petri dish but in between these these big jumps they will then use all of their appendages in this like concerted method to uh they have these like feather-like structures called seedy like hair-like things or feather-like things coming off their legs and they will move all of their appendages to kind of in like small little like whirlpool type shapes to filter food out and towards their mouth. And then they're kind of like sorting particles and deciding what they want to eat. And then they'll do like this burst jump, move somewhere else, do this like filtration pattern to to collect food and then jump somewhere else and, and do that over and over again.
0: Aw, that sounds really cool though. I feel like I would like to watch that.
1: They are pretty cool to watch. I think there's probably some videos on YouTube if people could see of like planktonic copepods. They also are really amazing at following like chemical cues in the water. So people have done experiments where they have like female copepods swimming through the water and then they'll put like a male copepod in the same Petri dish and he can track her like exact path through the water at a distance that is like many, many times their body length. So for us, it might only be like a centimeter, an inch, but if you're a really tiny copepod, that would be like walking outside and knowing that like a girl had walked by and had made a left and a right and then walked down this other block and they can basically smell them in the water and follow that exact path so much so that sometimes they'll follow the path but they'll follow the path in the wrong direction for a little while because they're like the you know they turned left instead of right like the female was going to the left but they they're sensing her path but actually After traveling just a small distance, they'll realize, wait, the gradient of these chemicals is getting fainter. This must have been the opposite way, and then they'll turn around and follow the path the other way.
0: That's so clever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever had any moments where you were like watching one um, or working with one and they did something that was like surprising to you where you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that.
1: That is a really good question. I mean, the ones in the nose really just surprised me. I had heard that there could be copepods in fish noses. Somebody had told me that at some point. And one day when I was working in Australia, we were working with commercial fishermen and we were basically asking them for the fish that they couldn't sell. And then we would take them back and dissect them. And we had like an assembly line of people studying all of the parasites of fish so we could document kind of what was going on in this bay in Australia. And one day we didn't get that many fish. And I was like, okay, well, I still want to try to collect some copepods. I'd already looked at like their body surface and their gills. And I was like, huh, let me just look to see if there's anything in their nostrils. And I was super surprised to be like, I found, I saw some eggs, like a, some egg sacs, and I was like, oh wait, that, there must be a copepod in here, and then I opened it up, and like, this fish is dead, and I kind of like dissected its nostril, and there was like eight or ten copepods in there, and I'm like, oh my gosh, these things are living in there, and that turned out to be a new species, and there's there's like more than a few dozen species of copepods that are only known from fish nostrils, and they they tend to be known from like mackerel and these fish that humans catch all the time but I found it in a totally different group of fish which makes me think that these copepods are probably in all sorts of fish nostrils and like who is just looking in fish nostrils right The only reason we found the ones in mackerel is because people catch those all of the time. And so they've like surveyed their parasites in a little bit more detail. But I bet there's maybe hundreds of new or maybe even thousands of new species of these copepods living in fish noses and nobody's ever looked in their noses before.
0: (laughs) It's a treasure trove of fish boogers. Yeah. oh my gosh but that's pretty clever of them to get up there right
1: super sheltered habitat it's
0: like a cave in the face of the fish yeah it's a
1: very safe area uh, yeah
0: i would imagine if the fish's nostrils are at the front of the fish then as the fish is swimming you probably get a lot of water that flows through there too right? Probably
1: and I think I, I would guess the copepods are probably like just feeding on like mucus from the fish and so there's there's plenty of that in the nostrils too and fish kind of secrete mucus to cover their whole body. They could also be scraping the surface of the fish or something we're not totally sure what these ones are eating but they definitely seem yeah quite happy in in the nostrils.
0: Our reactions to this would be very different if you and I were fish, but since we're not, it's really cool.
1: (laughs) And this isn't just the case for like fish nostril copepods, but you know, especially the copepods that live on other marine animals, people have just not spent a ton of time looking at parasites of, you know, sponges or starfish or sea squirts or mussels or, you know, all of these different, especially marine invertebrates. And so I am sure that, you know, there we know there's 14,000 described species of copepods. It wouldn't surprise me if in actuality, there was more like 50,000 species of them. And we've only kind of hit the, the tip of the iceberg.
0: Is there any sort of and I say this from my own uneasiness towards the ocean, do copepods ever parasitize humans? No, they don't.
1: You know, I've never heard of it. I once heard somebody claim, or maybe it was like a not super accurate article claim that somebody had gotten like pinched by one once. I don't think so, I mean, I've picked, I've picked up the ones like the, some of the larger ones that are maybe like about the size of your fingernail that could be found on salmon and stuff like that. Um, they can like, you know, scuttle along your your skin. They wouldn't ever do that in the wild They know you're not a fish and they're not interested in you. But I, you know, I did it in a Petri dish because I was like, well, what is this little thing like? And they can use their suction cup to attach to you, but there's no pain at all associated with that. They do have tiny claws, but it's not like, You know, like a crab can pinch you, but something like this small, its claws are like microscopic and you wouldn't feel a pinch or anything even. So you're safe. Yeah. Everything else in the ocean is not, (laughs) but humans (laughs) are. They don't really survive drying out very well. So even, you know, birds that spend a lot of their time in the ocean don't get parasitic copepods on them. But for instance, sea turtles do have parasitic copepods that will attach to them. Um, so if it's in the water for an extended period of time, there's a good chance it could fall prey to, to some copepods.
0: One for every occasion. Yeah. It's like a good pair of jeans. There's just <laughs> it's a copepod for everything. The last category that we talk about for our animals is aesthetics. I don't know how challenging this is going to be for you, but I feel like I would be co- challenged if confronted with having to consider the aesthetics of copepods. What would you give them for aesthetics?
1: Well, I will say, you know, my favorite copepods, parasitic copepods, maybe most people wouldn't find them that aesthetically pleasing, but there's some like these these little copepods that live inside of sea squirts that I just think are adorable. They kind of look more like caterpillars than like a copepod. They're like very plump and they just have like these tiny little legs they almost look like a tardigrade if you've seen a tardigrade Uh it's like it's a very different shape than a typical copepod so i've always found those like really cute and i collected some once and i was like these are so neat and they do walk around and look tardigrade like so cute but in terms of the aesthetically pleasing ones they're the marine kind of more planktonic ones, and there was this guy Ernst ha- Haeckel. I think he was in like the 1800s, and he did these illustrations of all sorts of animals in a very artistic way. He kind of put them into these like mosaic symmetrical plates. If if people want to look them up, it's they're they're beautiful. He did all sorts of animals, birds and marine animals. He did some of the free living copepods that have these like amazing feathery appendages. And they really do look like little jewels, some of them. And in fact, there's a few... There's one group of copepods called sapphirina. That's the genus. And they're the common name, they're sometimes called sea sapphires because they are these like iridescent blue. And so they actually can be very beautiful. So yeah, hard to say. Maybe I'll give them an eight out of ten, because okay. I feel like I've given ten out of ten on the other things, and I feel like they're, you know, like their effectiveness, their adaptability, and everything, that's really where they've shined. Personally, I might give them a, a 10 out of 10. I think they're some of the most interesting and cute little things. But maybe the rest of the audience wouldn't rank them so highly. But I would say check out like sea sapphires, saphirina, or the the haeckel plates, Ernst haeckel plates of copepods, because you will see some things that you're like, that doesn't look like a shrimp at all. That looks like this elaborate peacock like type thing. Yeah, they're they're interesting.
0: I'm looking up a sea sapphire right
1: now. Yeah, they can like flash these iridescent blues sometimes. Yeah. Ooh. And it's not a bioluminescence. There are other sea creatures like ostracods that could do that. But these are iridescent. So, like, when the light just hits them a certain way, they will look like an iridescent blue, like a sapphire gem.
0: I'm looking at one right now, and it's lit. It's really cool. <laughs> it's I love lit. this. <laughs> this is a really cool little dude yeah and he is cute yeah yeah they are cute it's a cute little (laughs) friend they're shaped like a friend and they're all glowy blue yeah i feel like that could be like the poster child learn more about copepods look at this one it's all sea sapphires.
1: that's a good you know that's like a catchy name too it's good branding i
0: love that that was everything that we had for our copepods pods today. So before we get wrapped up, I wanted to just kind of give you the floor to talk about anything that you're working on right now that you want people to know about or like where people can find you online, anything like that.
1: Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm most active on Twitter at Jimmy Bernot. J I M M Y B E R N O T. And I usually post things like marine biology or parasitology type stuff. And yeah, I guess one thing I would like to say is, you know, people often ask me why I study parasites because they think they're kind of gross or weird or whatever. But I want to, you know, if people leave this um, knowing one thing, I think they should know that parasites are actually these like have amazing adaptations to to surmount all sorts of challenges that we've never even thought of before and that they're actually important parts of healthy ecosystems, and so uh, they can be harmful in some cases. And like certainly human parasites, you know, we should we should get rid of those but they are, in natural ecosystems, they're actually very good indicators of ecosystem health because parasites tend, can rely on multiple hosts and have complex life cycles. And so if things are disturbed in an ecosystem, sometimes the parasites, they're often the first things to go like locally extinct. And they also have this in, important role in uh, regulating their host populations. So If you think of like a great white shark as being this apex predator, actually, it has parasitic copepods that are one level higher in the food chain because they are actually eating the great white shark. You know, they're not eating the shark all at once, but parasites do also have an important role, just like predators do, in, in regulating prey populations. Parasites have important roles in regulating host populations. So they're a completely natural and beneficial part of a healthy ecosystem. So that's, you know, one thing I would point out. I'm also on Instagram. I'm a little newer on Instagram, but I, when I do find cool uh, parasite photos and things like that or something cool under the microscope, I'll try to post pictures of those. And yeah, just more broadly, I guess, I'm interested in all sorts of kind of marine invertebrates, especially crustaceans and parasites. And then outside of that, I'm I'm kind of nerdy too. I like, you know, I love uh, science fiction and fantasy books and movies, video games, and, and all sorts of, of those things, too. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's a little bit about me outside of the science.
0: Birds of a feather, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming to talk about Copepods with us today. I I really appreciate all of your knowledge and enthusiasm. I feel like it's contagious.
1: Uh, thanks, Ellen. And thanks for having me on Just the Zoo of Us. I've been following you guys for a while now, and I'm so glad that we've got to chat about copepods. And I hope, you know, your listeners now, next time they hear a copepod or they, I don't know, they think about it next time they're looking at a pond or a puddle or the ocean or something, because uh I mean, I love these things and I I hope that, you know, more people get interested in them and and appreciate them too. Definitely. Or come study them. There's 14,000. There's
0: plenty to go around. (laughs) There's so many niches that you can fill. (laughs) We'll recruit for the Copepod Army. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Jimmy. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Ellen. Bye.